Hello and welcome to a special edition of the SPAC Insider Podcast with Omid Malik, Chairman and CEO of the Columbia SPACs. SPAC Insider founder Christy Marvin asks Omid what brought him to the SPAC market and how his first SPAC, Columbia One, navigated changing market tides as it closed in on its combination with Public Square. He discusses the opportunity and risks at play in targeting companies that wear their values on their sleeves in a politically charged environment. As a part of the new crop of serial SPAC sponsors, how does he see the product developing into 2024 and what changes could benefit sponsors, investors, and targets alike? Take a listen. So um, thanks for joining today, Amid. Uh, I was looking forward to speaking today, you know, primarily because you're part of what I would like to call our newer crop of serial sponsors, especially the, you know, ones that arose during the boom times. So we're going to be able to get a, a different perspective on the SPAC market today, as opposed to maybe some of um, the other serial sponsors who've been around a lot longer. You know, before we get started, I thought it would be helpful if we sort of set the table by way of your background and CV. Uh, with that being said, you are the founder and CEO of Farvahar Partners, which is a boutique investment bank and broker-dealer um, that is an advisor and liquidity provider to high-growth venture-backed companies. You're also president of 1789 Capital, which provides financing to companies in the EIG economy, which stands for Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and Growth Economy. You also have previously been a lawyer at Wheel Gotchel, and we just talked about how you know you used to work at uh, B of A, uh, working with hedge funds in the prime department, I believe. So clearly you have some expertise and affinity for growth companies, but one other thing before we get into it, I have to ask, the name 1789 Capital, is that a reference to the French Revolution, <laughs> or does it have some other meaning? Uh, I get that asked a lot. Um, it's definitely uh, open to interpretation, but the way I like to say it, it's actually the year the Bill of Rights was put into effect. You know, everyone thinks about 1776, but it was not until 1789 that the Bill of Rights was actually put in effect, which I think is, you know, such an important document. And in fact, if, you know, we don't uh, get back to, you know, the Bill of Rights in this country, I do think that we will have the guillotines like we did in 1789. So they are related. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guillotines are certainly out for specs right now in the media, that's yeah. for sure. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think what I'd first like to start with is, you know, how were you first introduced to specs? Meaning, why did you decide to pursue the vehicle? Yeah, so it goes back to what you started with, which is the fact that, um, you know, until 2018, I was running prime brokerage and capital introductions globally at B of A at a pretty young age. So I had a lot of experience with, you know, asset management and and the sell side. But then in 2018, I decided to become an entrepreneur. And that's when I started Farbahar uh, Capital, which is a broker dealer. So I kind of had a boutique advisory firm and investment bank. And what we did was basically raise capital in both a primary and secondary basis for high growth venture backed businesses. So it's very much in the middle of the private markets, understanding it from the perspective of an advisor on M&A as well as a capital raiser. So you couldn't operate in that space during that period of time, particularly around 2019 and 2020 when the boom happened and not have SPACs just smack you in the face, right? And um, that's kind of when I had my first entree to them, having not really worked with them before, wasn't from the sponsor side, but was actually from an advisor side. We started representing companies uh, that were targets of SPACs when they started sprouting up everywhere you looked. Uh, and then we were advising sponsor teams. Um, we underwrote with our broker dealer, Churchill 5, 6, 7, and uh, Alt-C that our friend Michael Klein did, who we're very close with. Uh, certainly was good learning about SPACs under someone with that level of experience. Um, so that's something I definitely want to tip my hat to. And they were involved, uh, Michael and his brother Mark, uh, in Columbia 1 
you know, so that was helpful to learn from someone who had uh, had a lot of experience. But we also learned, um, you know, empirically ourselves, as I mentioned, from an advisor capacity. And then that made it very easy for us to then say we should have our own vehicle now uh, when we did ours in June of 21, which is kind of getting towards the tail end of the boom, uh, because we had our own proprietary deal flow. We were already working with the kinds of companies that were going public during that two to three year period. So it was a logical extension. And uh, sorry to go on for so long, but I just want to make the final point that what you're getting at is the platform that we're building. We have a broker dealer. We're always going to have SPACs in the market under the Columbia banner. And then the third part is what you mentioned, 1789 Capital, which is our fund. So we're able to invest, advise, or potentially take a company public in the private market. We want to be able to perform financial triage on every opportunity we see. Right. Interesting. Well, you know, I do want to get into your first deal, Columbia One with Public Square. But before we do that, you know, you did mention Columbia One IPO in June of 2021, as you mentioned, the sort of tail of the boom. But then you announced that deal in February of 2023. You closed the deal in July of 2023 this year. Very, very different markets between IPO announcement and closing. Wondered what your impressions were about how rapidly the market changed and how did it affect the deal? It was a dramatic shift. I mean, you can uh, people can look back at kind of the team that we had assembled in June of 21, what we thought we were going to go after. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we were right in the mix of raising capital for a lot of consumer tech businesses. That's kind of who we put on our board, prominent venture capitalists, entrepreneurs. You know, we were going to play on, you know, the notion of potentially having some influencer to accelerate growth. I mean, we had this whole, you know, best laid plans, as I like to put it. And then, you know, obviously for a variety of macroeconomic reasons, political, uh, regulatory reasons that we can go into if you're interested, the market for SPACs shifted dramatically, uh, obviously supply demand issues, all of that. And, you know, the kind of companies or sectors that we were originally excited about looked like probably the worst kinds of businesses to talk to. So there was no doubt uh, a pivot in real time. And I think what really differentiated us is that we had the ability to do that pivot. Uh, as you've seen, because you know better than anyone, most SPACs did not, which is why you now have the graveyard you do. They could not pivot from what their original, uh, I guess, emphasis or interest was in when the world shifted underneath their feet. And so I think that speaks to you know the kind of team we have uh, from a core basis, but also goes back to the biography you read, having worked in politics, in law, in finance, I have a very differentiated network um, that allowed me to do that. So you mentioned that you had to shift your strategy, let's call it. Before you had settled on Public Square, how many companies do you think you'd evaluated at that point? And, you know, given how quickly the market changed, I mean, were you just, you know, rapidly having to, you know, re-strategize as far as like what companies you wanted to target? Well, I think it were well, dozens upon dozens of meetings. I mean, uh, it's probably enumerated somewhere on that S four now. When you when you talk about all that, you know, uh, that that part of the process. So there were uh, a tremendous amount uh, that we did in order to, to try to find the perfect company for us. But what I found happening um, is really, I think, uh, uh, you know, a referendum on the market, which was almost a self fulfilling prophecy in that you started to get all of these advisors involved. You started to have, um, you know, these intermediaries try to push up pricing and mm. then and the um, market shifted and the company started having more leverage in the discussion. They started demanding at the behest of their advisors, kind of absurd enterprise values and valuations. 
And they could do that because then the SPACs, of which there were too many, would get desperate and then just start throwing spitting against the wall with these ridiculous valuations just to win a deal. Hmm. That's actually what you're seeing right now, which is why you've seen, look how fast we got through the whole process. It was like five months, right? Not even actually less from when we announced the deal and closed, basically. It's not just the regulatory component. The reason why those people have announced six months, a year before us and have not closed is because they can't get financing. Because it's one thing for the target and the SPAC to agree on a purported valuation, but it's not just a merger. Someone has to validate that. Either the pipe market or the capital markets have to then say, that's a fair valuation. And you're just not seeing that because of the desperation. And so everything ends up being a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, in that the more that they price it up, the less likely it's going to actually have any buyers on the back end. And uh, that's part of the supply demand uh, kind of uh, imbalance that I was referring to. Do you think companies are a little bit more realistic about valuations now? Um, and by that, I mean, you obviously announced Public Square in February of 2023. So the companies you were talking to, I mean, had they had sort of a come to Jesus moment, at least about their valuations? Well, yeah, I mean, just not within the SPAC market. I think the market writ large, look at what's happening in 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 public markets, which then inform the private market. You know, when we are players in the private market, we know exactly what things should trade for because we're constantly making markets in the secondary market for private deals. And what I've seen since, you know, the market started to really slow down in uh, January of 22 is, you know, these companies that were backed by SoftBank or Tiger Global are taking 80 to 90% haircuts on their valuation. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily going to lead to salvation, but that's just the state of the state. Uh, buyers are not there uh, for any other price. And that's also related to, you know, their own return profiles in a high interest rate environment. Like the music stopped pretty dramatically for folks. Um, and that's why it's just a total recalibration of private markets and public markets. And it's not really about SPACs starting to suck or all the stupidity you see when they want to try to be negative about this product. It's that it got wrapped up like everything else in the downturn. And that means that the product needs to evolve um, and probably a lot more niche. It's like anything else, like they got too many people jumped into it uh, at one of the most insane booms we've seen. Uh, don't forget, I mean, not only was it a zero interest rate environment, the government was pumping trillions of dollars into the system simultaneously. So it was a free ride and that's over. So I actually think this is where we want to be uh, not only contrarians, but people that are surviving when it's hard. Yeah, to me, it's less interesting when people are great when it's easy. Who can do it when it's difficult? Yeah, I totally agree. And I, it always used to drive me drive me crazy how the media, you know, they would um, talk so negatively about SPACs, you know, and talking about the companies they combined with. And I'd be like, yeah, but have you looked at the traditional IPO market? <laughs> Some of the companies that went public during that period too, because they I, were shooting down. They were horrible and, and the same kind of effectively more or less the same. So, it, you know, there was really no standards on that side of ledger. Now, make no mistake, before the SPAC boom happened, which I thought was welcomed for a variety of reasons, but most notably that the peak of publicly traded companies in this country prior to 2020 was in 1995. So we were really at a state there before 2020 where going public was just not interesting for a variety of reasons. One was globalization and sources of capital 
which is that companies were just staying private longer because you could go raise hundreds of millions of dollars from what used to be public investors like Fidelity and T. Rowe were investing in late stage private. So there was really no incentive to go public. Sarbanes-Oxley created you know, compliance issues that you wouldn't have to deal with if you were private. And then the Jobs Act that Obama signed in, in I think 12, quadrupled the amount of private investors you could have. So all of those reasons created a glut of private companies. And the SPAC boom was in the beginning, like, wow, look at all these huge businesses that you know are waiting here. And before the regulatory input that came in, you had the opportunity for it to be an easier way for these high growth venture backed businesses that have been private a lot longer than they had in the past to go public, you know, the use of projections and, and so on and so forth. So I actually thought at the time um, it was a very elegant solution. Uh, and now it will have to be an elegant solution under a wholly separate set of facts. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but anyway, so sort of pivoting a little bit, you're 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 known for backing conservative companies, or or let's call it uh, companies in the what they call the patriot economy. What's the thesis behind that? Well, that it, it's definitely what I've become known for. It's not at all you know my career, and uh, it's just been that way in the recent past because I see an incredible opportunity. I mean. I suppose, you know, this isn't meant to be an ideological discussion. I do think there are a lot of people, though, um, who are a little bit troubled by what went on during COVID as it related to kind of suppression of speech and fining people for misinformation, what happened in Canada with the truckers who lost their bank accounts. So there were certainly some novel events that occurred in 2020 that started to further my interest in the Bill of Rights as we started the conversation, right, and how this polarized country we live in that we started to see federalism take hold where right New York and California had a very specific model during COVID and Florida and Texas and others had a very different. So you're starting to see political and cultural divides in the country. And it was kind of clear to me that the next battlefield was going to be around commerce. And you see that because of, you know, the backlash that began around the same time to ESG, you know, Vivek who's running for president talked a lot about that. And then you saw, you know, states divest from uh, red states divesting from BlackRock uh, because of kind of the ESG or, you know, social wokeism, for lack of a better phrase, that they were pushing on some of these companies. And so I started to see that it's very clear that it's not the 90s anymore, where you remember Michael Jordan said he doesn't talk about politics because Republicans buy sneakers, too. We were way past that. OK, and it was very clear that people were wanting to patronize companies that also reflected the values that had made them move to a certain state or vote for a certain candidate. And what's really funny is that coincided directly to the SPAC boom. And I started seeing uh, those manifestations there too. So I'm getting to answer your question. Sorry, it's so long-winded, but it's really complicated as to how it all takes place because it wasn't something that I've been doing for a long time, but I started seeing the migration, just like me moving to Florida during COVID. And then what ends up happening is um, you start seeing some of these, these boycotts and backlashes happening. You start seeing the stuff about the woke capital. It starts becoming you know top of mind. And then it hits the SPAC market because you have a company called Truth Social that announces a SPAC transaction with, uh, with DWAC, I, I think is what it was called. And the stock goes to like $150. What's that about? What was that? Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, start, I remember thinking, and I was in the market at the time with Columbia One, Oh, that's something odd. And then I see a company called Black Rifle Coffee go public via SPAC. And then I see Rumble 
go public via SPAC. And in the Rumble situation, it took place around the time that it started to get kind of bad. They didn't mm-hmm. have a dollar of redemptions on that deal. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, something's going on here. I was already politically connected, as I mentioned. Um, I had a SPAC vehicle and I started to think there's a real um, basis here for this patriotic economy. And I started really digging into it and thinking about it. And the first step I made was like, how do you quantify it? So I started just researching, like, let's just take Trump voters. There's 73 million of them. Um, The Brookings Institute did a study. They represent 30% of American GDP. So I said, okay, what's that? That's $7 trillion of GDP. And if you plotted that, that'd be the third largest economy in the world. And we know that as customers, they feel ignored and in many cases alienated. And you see Disney, Anheuser-Busch, the stuff with Target. And then you see the success of some of the companies that I mentioned. And I'm like, okay, uh, there's an opportunity here uh, if you, one, kind of like me, ideologically kind of agree with it, but you don't really even need to to see that there is green fields here. And then the second part of it, how do you democratize capital markets for these folks? And the SPAC product is actually an incredible mechanism to do that. It's very powerful. You get to take the message to the people in a way that a conventional IPO does not allow you. And so uh, that is some of the thinking behind what now, to your point, I've gotten much more involved in having a fund um, that does this and, and SPACs, but, but that was really the Genesis story. Right. Well, I hate to sort of jump around a little bit. Um, yeah. I'm going to jump to Columbia too, because you recently IPO'd that deal. Um, and I'm sort of curious if that was um, very strategic because we're heading into an election year. It, was that part of the thinking with um, IPOing a, a SPAC right now? Because I mean, candidly, the capital markets, um, M&A markets, I mean, everything's kind of come to a standstill at this point. Yeah. So let me answer that in two ways. The, the superficial answer is, of course, you're, you're you're picking something up there. There's no doubt. But but moreover, one of the things I hope we get into today is that a lot of the conventional issues don't affect me with the way I do these deals. And we can play that a little bit more. I didn't need the pipe market and I don't need the pipe market for a couple of reasons. One, I was able to facilitate a private placement financing for Public Square because as I as you recall, what I mentioned is I'm in the business of raising capital. That's what I do with my day job. So I can circumvent conventional sources of capital, having been in the business now for you know 20 years. And also that's my expertise. So I don't need a lot of the you know situations to be ripe in order for me to get a successful transaction done. You know, some of the, the success of Public Square was so tremendous, only someone like who really follows a product would really get it. And so, you know, your audience and you will understand some of the inside baseball. The vast majority of people won't when you don't have to do a pipe, but can do a private placement. When you're able to waive minimum cash, when you don't put any structure, no non-redemption agreements or FPAs, none of that stuff, no debt on the company. I don't have any precedent for that clean of a transaction in the last several years. So to the extent people do limp across a finish line in the environment you just described, they're doing a lot of those things to try to do that. We did none of them. And so when I go back out um, and I'm able to get terms that I think represent the best terms, if you look at them in their totality, probably since 2021, it's not just one or two terms, it's everything. It's because of the success around the first one that people understand that, yes, 
Um, I'm going to do something very similar and, you know, use a lot of the same skill sets. And so for folks that, you know, might have redeemed and didn't get to play when public square went to $30 the next day, you know, they're like, Oh, okay. I, I probably want to be a part of that this time. So I think that was a lot of the resonance and why we were so oversubscribed, which again, as you know, isn't happening. There's a part of me that wants to sort of bring up the fact that, you know, there's just like a real lack of deal flow. Yeah, no, sure. By the way, totally, all, fair. Right? totally fair. I'm, I look, I love bragging about myself, but I'm also a realist. So <laughs> yes, totally agree with you. But again, do that in the context of the terms and it becomes even more, I think, impressive. Like if I was just going out there and I was like giving it away, go ahead and take a full warrant and, and whatever, I'll do it in 12 months. Then I think I'd, I'd agree with that slightly more. But you have to show me someone that was able to do that, all of those things with that level of demand, you know, in the last two years. And I think that's when it, it looks slightly more impressive. But again, it's super niche. We're doing something very idiosyncratic. And, um, you know, we're not trying to be everything to everyone. It, 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 it's, it's very specific. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, you bring up a good point on uh, terms, right? So uh, Columbia or uh, Two um, was a one-third warrant deal, uh, 24 months plus uh, an additional three months if you need to extend, and 100% uh, trust, right? And those terms are very um, favorable to the sponsor. We haven't seen terms like that since, um, I believe it was February 2023 when Silverbox uh, 3 had a third warrant. Um, but, yeah, but, you know, they, the market... they, overfunded, they overfunded their trust. I didn't. Right, right, right. I am talking specifically about the, oh, the, oh, okay. the warrant, the yeah. one-third warrant. Yeah. Um, but, you know... It, we, we haven't seen terms like that in quite some time. So I'm just sort of curious, um, you know, what the feedback was on the roadshow. I mean, did you get a lot of pushback on it? Um, what was well, that like? And and, and the, the reason is, is no, is because it's not just me being good at, you know, pitching or whatever. All we had to do was show some of the statistics that I began speaking about. And most of them know me already because of both the last IPO, which by the way, we had the exact same terms in, you know, in June of 21, they're just duped. Um, and what we were able to deliver them during the DSPAC process. So if you look at our warrants on the public square transaction, they hit $3.25 at one point, and they mm -hmm. were at a dollar before we even closed the transaction. No other SPAC did that. During the DSPAC process, our float turned over four times. No other SPAC did that. And so during the entire time, we traded above trust. So if you know what SPAC investors by and large are looking for, we gave it to them in spades and we didn't have anybody that came close to that in the last 18 months. So if you're looking at this as a prospective um, purchaser of the IPO, all you have to look back is what I did for you five months ago. And you just have to believe based on everything that's already out there about me that I can do it again. Right, right. Well, um, I'm going to make another small pivot here, um, but you did mention previously uh, retail, right? I did want to talk about retail because yeah, sure. um, I'm just sort of curious. I mean, the, the fickle nature of retail, right? I mean, they were all in on SPACs in 2020, 2021, and they're, they've largely been absent lately. Um, but more importantly, um, how, how does a company, and the reason I'm bringing this up is if we do look at DWAC or Rumble, um, you know, or Public Square, you know, when it came time to the vote, they were, uh, the shareholder base was heavily retail, right? Yeah. yeah. And how does that affect, you know, uh, um, target companies, right? Like when you're talking to target companies, are, are, are they afraid of that? Do they embrace it? 
Um, you know, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what it's like having um, a shareholder base with a heavy retail uh, component. Well, I think, again, in our little niche that we're talking about today, this EIG ecosystem, it's very favorable. It's something that they are absolutely uh, looking for and want because there's an ideological component to it. What else would possess people to go and buy the shares of DWAC? I mean, that deal still hasn't closed, however many years now it's been or you know, year and a half or, or whatever. It, it, it's viewed as, as like, we support this. And so the way you used to have the meme craze, that was more almost something that people were doing with expendable income during, um, you know, the COVID period, right? I think they just made a movie about it. Um, but I think that's ephemeral and it's temporary. It's like any other kind of marketing you do in business. But if you have a product that already has a built-in support system based on ideology, which is what these companies represent, that is extremely differentiated and sticky capital. And by and large, they will not participate in any other SPAC unless you can capture that imagination. And that's exactly what happened with uh, Rumble and, and then Public Square. You know, I think something like 30% of the trust was represented by, by retail investors. So it's it, it creates a very compelling dynamic because, you know, more often than not, they are supportive and they stay in, which is part of the process with a SPAC is that you want to try to limit redemptions as much as you can. And then it also provides, you know, the institutional investors to come and, and trade in and out of that dynamic, which creates obviously complete incremental liquidity that would not be there otherwise. So it's tremendously important, you know, if, 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 if you're going down that route. And then obviously those are the customers of the product to the extent that you're working with a company um, that is a that is a consumer facing business, right? It ends up being very, very compelling. I mean, one of the nice things that we put out was when the SPAC transaction for Public Square, and by the way, there's a reason why the founder and CEO of Public Square has joined the board of Columbia A2. Uh, you've been in this business a long time. Have you ever seen that? I've seen it only like once or twice. It is pretty rare. Um, right, yeah, it's very rare, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and we were doing the roadshow, like most people, there was no point. People, they were just like, wow, that's another great fact that this guy had such a good experience with you. And, and one of the reasons is, you know, we, through, you know, the kind of attention that the transaction received, were accretive to the underlying business itself. You know, something like just from when we announced the deal to when it closed, we quadruple, we helped quadruple the registered users uh, on public square from something like 400,000 to almost 1.6 million. So, you know, focusing more on the companies, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about how let's call it SPAC's reputation has taken a little bit of a nosedive <laughs> um, in the past year, year and a half. Um, how difficult is it? talking to target companies and and trying to discuss possibly going public via SPAC? I mean, have you found that challenging or do you think um, sponsor reputation sort of su supersedes that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think that's definitely, again, generally speaking, to answer the question, it's going to be very tough for sponsors because first of all, to say nothing about the overall negative connotations with the transaction, there's also increased regulatory scrutiny around it, and it was used effectively during the boom as, I think, a replacement for, for venture financing. And that's just not, one, going to be able to be done right now with unwieldy or uh, outlandish projections. 
And then two, the market isn't buying it because they feel like they've been burned. So that takes out a large cohort of potential businesses for you right off the bat. So then it's kind of like, okay, are you going to go get a company that's really worth $10 billion or $8 billion to go public via SPAC? Why would they do that? Mm-hmm. They could just do a regular way IPO. So I guess where I'm getting at with that is that it's going to be, I think, a much more limited offering now for the kind of business. And that's why one of the reasons why we've tried to keep our uh, our vehicles a little bit smaller, because ultimately I do think from an enterprise value perspective, this is meant for you know, either companies that are more nascent in nature that have a lower uh, enterprise value or much more established businesses uh, that want a liquidity option that have, you know, pretty compelling EBITDA profiles. And that may be just a bit of a segue because I didn't do it properly at the outset to just define this EIG ecosystem for you, which I think also marries very nicely to the barbell approach that we have with the kind of companies we look at, mm-hmm. you know, there's effectively three buckets to what we are calling this patriotic or EIG ecosystem. The first is the one that you're most familiar with and most people are, which is what we call the replication economy. That's what you've seen with SPACs so far, where you know uh, Public Square is a response to Amazon, um, Rumble is a response to YouTube, and Black Rifle Coffee is a response to Starbucks. Our investment in Tucker Carlson that we did through 1789 is a response to cable news. That's going to keep happening around, you know, payment processors, banks, web hosts. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. It's the most obvious. Um, and those tend to be much more nascent companies. So as it relates to a SPAC, you're probably looking at like an enterprise value of sub 1 billion with those kinds of companies. Um, the second bucket are companies that we think enhance American prosperity or security. So think defense tech. You know, we invested privately in a company that you know, develops uh, rocket fuel for missiles. But this has become another hot area, which is also the onshoring of manufacturing in a deglobalized world with China. And then the third bucket is the other end of the spectrum. These are companies that have been kind of adversely affected by the ESG paradigm. So the ESG paradigm has influenced both banks and large asset man- managers through pensions about what they can and cannot invest in. So you might have a company in the fossil fuel space or coal or ammunition that are deemed to be in a vice area, and they might be generating a ton of revenue, but they're not able to get an investment or a loan. You know, for a SPAC or a potential investor, you could acquire those companies for cents on the dollar as a result of that dislocation. And so those companies will be more incumbents who have been established for a long time. But I just point this out for you and your listeners to understand the breadth of the investable ecosystem for us in EIG. It's quite broad. uh, And it's not just about these like replication companies that are coming up now. Well, you know, it's interesting, right? The the administration is uh, obviously democratic. The SEC leans pretty heavily to the left, let's call it. Uh, Do do you worry about, let's call it, you know, extra review or just difficulty getting through that process at the SEC? because um, you are bringing, let's call it uh, a more conservative company public or something in one of those vice areas that the left doesn't like? Yeah, I mean, obviously I still uh, wanna have, you know, complete co- uh, you know, confidence in our, in our primary regulator. And, and, I, and that is what I feel so far because they treated us extremely fairly, um, you know, in the first one, even though it was a slightly ideological business, even though I, I don't, that's why I call it EIG. I hope that it's appealing to anyone that believes in entrepreneurship, innovation, and growth, 
And we focus on like positive attributes like patriotism. I don't ever attack, I've done so many interviews, I, I never go against or try to use ad hominem attacks against anyone. Um, and I don't want it to be a negative feeling. That's why I'm not really in favor of boycotts. All I'm trying to do is provide, I think, a capitalistic American solution, which is choice. It's just a very obvious problem. There's a large percentage of the population that doesn't feel like they have products and services that align with their values. And we want to help give that to them. It, it kind of, that's as far as like I'm taking it. I think that's better than telling big companies, you don't do that. Well, no, they can do whatever they want, but why don't we give people choice? So I haven't, you know, when you take that posture, I think it'd be really strange for any regulatory body to have an issue with that. And we haven't found that we've had any issues whatsoever. It's it, it's kind of just, you know, conducting yourself in a very professional manner like we do with the best, uh, you know, focus on on compliance and legal and all the stuff that we do. And, uh, and the process has worked quite nicely. And I think, again, like the reality is, is the capital markets belong to every American, not just people who are liberal. They belong to everybody. So everyone has the right to use them. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. You know, you did kind of sail through um, the SEC review process. You know, as you mentioned, I think it was only five months between announcement and, and close for you. So um, it doesn't appear that that had any effect at all. Yes, um, and, and I don't anticipate that it will because for all the reasons I just enumerated. And I also don't think that a regulator, regardless of whether it's SEC or anybody else, wants to be in a position of trying to pick winners and losers based on like an ideology. That's not their role. You know, primarily uh, the SEC, right, is focused on, on disclosure regime and, and you got to make sure you, you do that. But otherwise, you know, I haven't had any thought that it would be negative because otherwise, if, you, if, if, if people go in that, and by the way, but that's different though than do different commissioners have different views and perspectives? I think that's a truism. I think the SEC under the Trump administration clearly has different priorities than uh, the SEC under Joe Biden. But I haven't seen that go into an arena where they're just, you know, being overtly political about whether or not they like specific companies, if that makes sense. You know, that's a nuance I wanted to point out. So speaking of that, as far as opportunity going forward, right, because you're out searching with Columbia too. What sectors do you think you see the most opportunity in the next year or two? Obviously, consumer has taken a bit of a hit the past year, but, you know, maybe it bounces back. But, you know, where, where do you, you see the most opportunity coming from? Well, I think that as, as interested as I am in, you know, the second and third bucket of, of EIG, which is the, you know, kind of the national prosperity, the defense tech, or, you know, maybe some of these dislocated companies, which I think are fascinating, and we could go in that direction. I still think there's a lot of game to be played in the replication bucket. So that's an area where we're pretty passionate about. And I think you have a lot of customer adoption there. Because if you think about it, you know, there have been certain events that have made people kind of question, you know, their everyday usage of some of the more incumbent big tech products. So if you look at, you know, what happened with Amazon Web Services, um, deplatforming a, a social media company called Parler, you know, three or four years ago. Um, despite having a, you know, a, a contract, I think that, you know, gives people pause. So that whole area of kind of web hosting, payment processing, but really just financial services writ large, I think is very interesting around insurance, banking. Um, you know, we've had affinity marketing around credit cards since the beginning of time, right? Uh, or any product. So that's an area where if you really have good plumbing and a real tech and a real business, but you add the component of uh, this other area that we're talking about appealing to 
a motivated cohort, I think that could be very interesting. Sure. Um, all right. Well, I tell you what, you know, what is the biggest lesson you think you've learned um, having completed your first SPAC combination? That's a good question. And, and I and maybe say it would be from what we saw dating back even before that, which was like 2020, right? Because we started advising the product at that stage and seeing it now evolve over almost uh, over three years here. Uh, I would date it back to that. I, I One of the things we have another uh, partner on our team who's uh, in Columbia, he had a SPAC out of Canada um, that was focused on the cannabis space and it failed. And it was really helpful to have somebody at the seat who had a failure as well. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that people don't focus on as much, but you, you know, it's, it's little things that you know about like PCAOB audits, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. you can talk to this target all day and you might think they're the best thing since sliced bread, but if they don't have their, uh, their audits together, it's a non-starter. And in his case, they didn't. And that ended up delaying the deal when you have a finite amount of time. So these are things like in the minutia that typically don't get written about or talked about, but you have to be very cognizant of, you know, you really have to appreciate the fact that there are rules and regulations and a very clear roadmap you have to abide by. So the square peg into a round hole does not work uh, in a heavily regulated product. And so you have to make sure right from the get-go that anytime you're going to waste precious moments, really engaging uh, with a potential target, that that has to be understood and addressed from the get-go. And I think that's really been the differentiator for us is that discipline is to not go down the rabbit hole with something that isn't going to be, you know, compliant or have the ability to be compliant right off the gate. It's funny, uh, you know, SPAC time is different than regular time. <laughs> 24 months goes by incredibly fast, which is why I'm assuming you asked for uh, an additional three-month extension. I mean, how how important do you think time is? You know, there, have been, there are a lot of SPACs that have come out and are, you know, currently searching for a target that have needed to extend. You know, is that something that sort of weighs on your mind a lot and why you initially asked for 24 plus three? No, it's not any specific reason. It's just, I, I don't like, well, there's two things here. One is the glib response, which is like, I don't ever take worse terms because I did something great. I, I would get at least the same, right? So that's much like a principal point. Like when I was, I, those are the terms I had for Columbia A1. I certainly was going to do anything worse after I delivered a lot of alpha to the to the community, right? Mm -hmm. But more interestingly than just that statement or that principle is you have no idea what's going to happen in a month, in weeks, especially in as volatile of a, both a geopolitical and domestic situation we have right now. Look at what happened just in the two years we had Columbia One. The entire market shifted. We had to have the time in order to make that pivot that we talked about at the outside of this call. And so you never want to be in a situation where you're at the precipice of something amazing and just because you expired that you weren't able to pull that off. And so, look, we've got great shareholders in Columbia Two. They all understand what you and I have been talking about on this call. And they want the alpha, like we're an alpha generator play. Like if you just want to get, you know, friendly terms, go find somebody else. But I don't really see how smart that is. If you tie the, the hands behind the sponsors back, you're never going to get a good result. Maybe you're playing for a penny and you have a different investment thesis. That's fine. We're not for you. If you want to hit a home run, that's what we're trying to go after. That's what we're all about. And uh, I think the terms and the duration reflect that. But that said, you know, our goal is very much to try to find the best possible deal uh, as soon as practically possible. Right, right. Well, I, I tell you what, what do you think 
feel free to not answer this because it's it's going to be a very broad question. But what do you think is the biggest issue right now in the SPAC market, and and how would you solve it? Well, I, I'm I believe in Darwinism. Um, I think it's done us pretty well so far as a species, and I think that's what we're having right now is some good old fashioned Darwinism in the market. Um, I don't know that there needs to be some massive reformation of the product uh, at all. I just think the product will evolve as it has based on market conditions. And you've seen it really since the beginning, how, you know, it used to be about more kind of cash flowing private equity opportunities right at the outset. And now, you know, the most recent boom, it was for these venture backed high growth businesses that were losing money. The market, I think, is the way for the product to evolve rather than, you know, hindsight regulation, which is often, I don't think, very smart. Um, so I certainly wouldn't go and pull on that string I would say that you know what we had was euphoria in SPACs, just like we did in a series of other industries and products and capital markets broadly. And now we're having, I think, a healthy correction. And there need to be a lot fewer SPACs. The primary issue is the supply-demand imbalance. That's mm -hmm. what needs to get corrected. And just based on duration and the calendar, you're about to have that work out itself because of all the liquidations that have to happen. Even if they got extensions, they're basically zombie SPACs. They don't have enough money and trust and they have no ability to actually deliver any of that capital. So once those go away, you will have a much healthier supply demand relationship on companies and SPACs that are available. There are very few IPOs happening now, rightfully. I think it has to be for folks that have a particular expertise and the other thing is like, I hope that SPACs, just like we do with Public Square, deliver value to the target. So there's something different than just being a vehicle that takes you public. I mean, I'm on the board of Public Square uh, currently. And, um, you know, I think that's another area where we could really differentiate SPACs from a regular IPO if, if the sponsor teams were delivering uh, qualitative as well as quantitative value to the targets. So that's an area. And then you know, once you have fewer vehicles out there and companies continue to be starved of capital after almost three years now, they're going to look back to access capital markets. And for some of them that fall into the, some of the categories that I mentioned, the SPAC will reemerge as a viable uh, mechanism for them to go public. And so I honestly think you will have a resurrection of the product, but on a much more limited basis and a, and a much more bespoke one. Yeah, you know, you bring up a really good point. You know, one of the biggest features that sold a SPAC to companies was always a really good sponsor team that was helping shepherd them through the going public process and took a board seat and opened up the Rolodex and, you know, help them or guide them through, you know, becoming a public company that doesn't work with, uh, let's call it lesser quality sponsors. So agree to, I, I think getting back to, you know, a healthier market is the way to go. Um, but, you know, having said that, do you have any predictions for 2024? Um, I'm not sure if Joe Biden will be the nominee. Is that where you're looking? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, I meant it more in the context of SPACs, but no, hey, I would get all think anything. Well, yeah, I mean, as it relates to SPACs, I, as I said, I, I do think that you're going to have this interesting play where, again, the private companies that would access SPACs have really had a tough time raising capital over what will become almost three years, two and a half years. They need financing. And so where are they going to turn if the conventional venture market, by analogy, just like the pipe market, has been shut down and is also demanding different things? I, I just necessarily think 
that that desire and that need uh, will 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 engender more action, you know, on the SPAC side. And then at the same time, you're going to just have much, many a, a lot fewer SPACs as well. So my prediction is that you see an uptick in the product amongst a much smaller cohort, and in a very different way than we saw, you know, four years ago, or at the time, which will be four years ago, 2020, when it's 2024. Um, so that's kind of the way it, it, it goes. It's uh, it's an evolution, um, but I think a welcome one. All right. Well, I, I like the sound of that. So with that being said, I just want to thank you for participating. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, hope to see you again soon. Thanks so much for your time and congrats on all the success. I really appreciate it.